welcome to the Uncensored CMO. Now, I've got an absolute treat for you now. I'm joined in this episode by none other than industry legend Rupert Howe, founding partner of HHCL and Partners, uh, awarded by Campaign Magazine as the agency of the decade in the 1990s. They were responsible for some of the most iconic campaigns, uh, such as Tango, You've Been Tangoed, the fourth emergency service for the AA, uh, the launch of First Direct, the launch of Go, Ron Seal does what it says on the tin, just to name a few. Now, in this conversation with Rupert, we cover so much ground. In fact, we go on almost for two hours, so I hope you'll bear with me, but I promise it's worth it. We spend a lot of time actually talking about new business and the importance of winning pitches and growing customers. And it's funny, actually, because it's something that isn't discussed enough, but actually is at the heart of any business that's experiencing rapid growth. And uh, Rupert is very honest and open and shares many of the secrets to his success over his uh, very, very successful career. We also look at the campaigns that the HHCL created and what you can learn from Tango and the AA as examples and where the ideas came from that inspired such iconic and effective work. But also it's fascinated to find out from Rupert actually what it takes and the amount of hard work that it takes to really, really be successful. And I think you'll find that quite revealing. And also how relationships have basically underpinned all of Rupert's success and the importance of building trust, honesty and respect, not only within your team, but also with your customers and clients and the people you work with. So this is an absolute treat. There is so much to learn in this episode. I really enjoyed uh, talking to Rupert and I know you're going to absolutely love this one. So let's get into it. So I thought, obviously, if you don't mind, we'll start with the agency, the 90s. I mean, there's so much cool stuff there. And then um, I thought I would as well dip into new business. And and the reason why is because I don't know if you agree, but agencies spend a lot of time putting the creatives on a pedestal. The planners are like the clever, the clever people in the corner. But, but you know, the people that grow the business and work with, with clients don't tend to get much, uh, much airtime, do they? Oh, it's twas ever thus, isn't it? The salesmen yeah. are always the um, are always the people who are, are down the pecking order in in the roll call of glory, unless they, they start winning a lot of uh, sales, in which case they get pretty well rewarded. Yeah. So yeah. I never minded that. I mean, you know, the thing in advertising is the thing that matters the most is the idea and the creatives and the planners are the typically the architects and builders of those ideas. And the job of the, the client service people, obviously, is to make sure you've got the best chance of those, the best ideas being bought and made. And yeah. that, that comes from building a relationship of, of trust with the client and that, yeah. that's what the client service people do i had a mantra in the agency which uh, went honesty trust respect and I used to say to everybody the first thing you have to be with your clients is brutally honest if you don't know say i don't know if something goes wrong tell them it's gotten wrong don't let them find out um, <laughs> i remember very very early on one of our very very first press ads had a typo in it which for oh, me no. was a killer because i'm i'm a <laughs> Typo you are right. I've noticed that already. Yes. Always have been. Yeah. And I rang the client up and I said, look, I'm really, really embarrassed about this. We'll, you know, we'll give you a refund. But there was a, a typo in the ad. It was a very minor typo. And the client yeah. said, oh, honestly, it doesn't matter. Nobody will notice it. I didn't notice it. But thank you for calling me. And the reason I did that is, A, it's the right thing to do. But B, I think if you're honest with your customers in any walk of life, mm. they begin to trust you. And if they trust you and you build up 
proper trust between the two parties. You then yeah. get to that nirvana, which is respect, mutual respect. Where and what what mutual respect delivers is is the, the ability to listen to and take on board each other's point of view. Yeah. And and clearly in the client agency relationship, there's always some tensions in that. <clears throat> you know, the agency, you know, sees the world through the lens of advertising. The client sees the world through the lens of business where yep. advertising is an important component, but certainly not the be all or end all. And you have to have mutual respect for those positions and they only come from honesty and trust. Yeah. And so I think that's what good account service people do. Funny enough, new business is a slightly different skill. And I know in different types of agencies, it's either part of the job of every client service person or it's a separate job. Mm. And certainly in the big ad, ad agencies that I worked in, uh, and when I became new business director, it was a separate job. I was literally taken off all my client service duties yeah. to become new business director. And it was explained to me, excuse me. <coughs> the reason for that was explained to me quite well, which is if you have um, client duties as well as new business duties, the client duties will always come first. Yeah. And the reason for that is actually because they're easier than new business. So if you've got an excuse, you all know this, John, as somebody yeah. who's new business really. If you've got an excuse not to make that call, not to do that difficult thing, which is to talk to a person yeah. you've never met before, rather than talking to somebody you know, you'll always do the latter. And mm. actually, that's why in big agencies or, or substantial agencies, the new business director role was separate because you've got no excuse. You've got nothing else to do but to try and that, talk that, to the target. That, that, that is so true, isn't it? Because also, also in your to-do list, get, getting done what the existing customer needs doing is always going to be, the immediate task is always going to trump the long-term one, isn't it? Exactly. So, so one of the advice I've given to lots of startup agencies who've asked my advice over the last you know, 20 years or so or 30 years is um, you know, make sure you've got enough people looking after the existing clients so that you, the founder, yeah. chief exec, you know, whether that's me or Johnny Hornby at yeah. CHI or whoever, can actually spend not all their time, but the focus on their time on yeah. developing the business. Do you know that's so interesting, actually, because I think there's, there's probably three, if I look at my own career, there's, there's three parts of my own career where I've gone through lots of new business growth mm -hmm. and every time it's slowed down when I've had to again, get internally focused on organizing projects, prioritizing, recruiting, and it's almost, you know, it, it slows down because I'm looking in, not looking out. And, and it's, it's been the same pattern I've seen every time. It happens every time, um, John. And the, um, you know, I had a great example towards the end of my time at, at Young and Rubicon before I set up HHCL where I'd, I'd led and won the pitch for the British Gas Flotation, Tell Sid, which is still the biggest campaign in British advertising history. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, that was, you know, that was back in, you know, 1986. And I think we spent 27 million in three months. Now, imagine what that is in today's money. Wow. I mean, hugely successful. I mean, it paid for itself multiple times over. Hmm. As the Secretary of State, who's a wonderful man called Peter Walker, said to me at the... the the day of the um, flotation, he said, thanks to the strength of the Telsid campaign and the demand out there, I was able to price the issue at the very, very highest level that Rothschilds said was possible. And he said, every penny I added to that share price was worth 100 million. 
So you paid wow. for yourself in, in spades. Anyway, so a little side story. Uh, but, but one of the things that happened after that is that British Gas wanted to reward the agency and gave us the British Gas heating account. But they insisted as a condition that I ran the business as the management representative. <laughs> so for the first time for quite a long time, I mean, I'd run the gas flotation, but that was a project, not an ongoing account. Yeah. And, um, and uh, so I started, you know, managing the British Gas Client and it just meant I had less and less time for new business. Mm. And the agency strike rate started to fall. Mm. Um, and I left shortly after that, set up my own agency, and the agency strike rate plummeted. Then <laughs> a very good guy called Toby Hall got, got his uh, teeth into it and got them back up again because, again, he was a 100% new business director. Mm. And do, do you think there's a, there's a different new business skill set? Because I've noticed, you know, you've got established salespeople that are very good at keeping... The, the, you know, keeping the account going, doing the admin, managing issues, that kind of thing. But I generally find there's a different breed of person, isn't there, that, that is, is comfortable? I think so. It, it's know. either, you know, a, it's either a great account handling on steroids or mm. it's a slightly different mm. breed of person. I think the thing that marks out, and, I, you know, I have to be, uh, you know, slightly careful here because in a sense I'm talking about myself. And I was, I will remind you, voted the finest new business director of all time by campaign magazine <laughs> uh, the last time they did a feature which was about 25 years ago so i'm sure there's lots of people who've done better yeah. since but um uh it, i think it's having that competitive streak yeah and uh you know this the the joy was in winning and mm. uh, i've always been um very competitive and uh i like to win um uh, funny enough, less competitive in sport than you might imagine okay. when I played a lot of sport. I mean, I did yeah. like to win, but not at all cost yeah. like some people. But when it came to business, definitely, I, yeah. you know, it was the thrill of the chase. And some people like that and some people are scared by that. I loved it. And I, I was inspired really by people at Saatchi's and, mm. you know, we may talk a bit about Tim Bell later, who became really my, my mentor and then we ended up up as colleagues as well but you know the the Saatchi's machine in the you know in in that sort of early 80s later I mean it was extraordinary and they had this astonishing passion to win and never ever ever give up only famously mm. Saatchi's would win business having been told they'd lost the pitch <laughs> and then they'd work over literally work overnight ring the client the next morning and say uh, we've just realized there's one of the ideas we never showed you. Can we show it to you? Oh, and brilliant. the client invariably would say, Yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, you feel obliged, and, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And invariably, because they'd worked out why the other ideas haven't been successful, they'd come up with something that was good. Oh, so they snatched genius. victory from the jaws of defeat just uh, so often. And that inspired me. And one of the one of the mantras I had when new business director at YNR and then in my own agency is just never give up. Don't yeah. take no for an answer. There comes a point where you're going to piss the client off yeah. if you carry on nagging and you have to judge that, but just never gave up. And quite often we have clients very doubtful about the ideas we put in front of them because we were always pretty radical and it took a lot of handholding and we just, we always recognized that a pitch started the, from the very first phone call they made to you mm. and how you handled mm. that or the very first letter you got in the old days 
right down to the moment the other agency was announced in campaign, which yeah. was the point you gave up. <laughs> it, it's funny, actually, when, um, when I started freelancing about three or four years ago, I was quite surprised, actually. I got, I got a, 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 quite a large number of calls from agencies who I used to be their clients and said, oh, can you come and do some pitch training? And, um, you know, because obviously you've been a CMO, you understand it from the other side of the fence, you know, help us understand. So I I did this little presentation called the 10 things you never knew about a CMO, trying to get them into the into the head. And one thing I said that always I could never understand is whenever I sent the brief out, you know, for, for a pitch, I literally wouldn't hear from the agency for a week, two weeks until they came in. And I just said, the biggest thing I can tell you to do is phone up immediately. You get the brief, ask to speak to the decision maker and just get them to talk you through it and say, well, what's the business issue we're trying to solve? What criteria are you going to judge this by? How could we guarantee we win it? And and so in, you know, 15 minutes, you could probably, um, you know, work out how to win it sort of thing. But very wise, exactly what I used to do. So I'd get the brief and I'd just uh, ring up and say, look, I just want to check that I've understood this. So can we just walk through the brief together? And yeah, 15 minutes. And you got so many clues as to what the person was looking for. The other other critical thing from the agency perspective, and you can call this cynical if you like, and I call it uh, sensible, is there is only one purpose in pitching, and that's to win the pitch. It's actually not to solve the problem. (laughs) Oh, that's a good distinction. I like that. Yeah. The purpose is to win the pitch. There is only one purpose from the agency. I used to say to everybody, If you sit around thinking that you can, in three or four weeks, solve the problem of this business, Mm. you are deluding yourselves. Mm. You can't, okay? You might make a contribution towards solving the business, but you can't solve the the Mm. problem. You might be able to solve the the CMO's problem, which may be nothing to do with solving the business's problem. It may be to do with his or her relationship with the CEO it may be all all sorts of things I always used to want the first question I used to ask when discussing the brief is what keeps you awake at night and it's amazing how often it would stray off the the standard business discussion to personal issues Um, that and also I'd always find out the name of the PA and chat her up good because it was always a her I'd always chat them up yeah so I'd know their name and I'd know all sorts of things so that meant when it got down to the nearer the pitch or just after the pitch when they're briefed to keep the agencies away by the CMO <laughs> I could through because I knew Julie I'd say Julie I'm so sad that Spurs lost again this weekend yeah. because I'd know that Julie's a Spurs fan now what's John doing today when can I get it yes you know and they'd always help yeah oh that's so genius I'd, I'd always make friends with the receptionist the PA and I'd always um I'd always um focus on the decision maker and what his or her issue was and what was going to win the pitch and you know there's a many many times you won the pitch and then when you actually sit down with the client you properly say look the more we think about this we're not sure what we put up in the pitch is the right thing i also used to say to clients because i obviously Later in my career, I was often uh, asked to by clients to advise them on pitch processes. Mm. I said, honestly, you shouldn't be looking for the solution. You should be looking for the partner. Yeah. The, the people you can work yeah. with, you know, the people you like. And I remember going with one client to choose an agency in Germany. And we did the three pitches in one day. And the client said to me, he said, you know, 
I really like, you know, what Agency One did. You know, I, I did. I'm not sure about I like them. Now, Agency Three, what lovely people, but I wasn't didn't think the pitch was very good. So I said to them, well, yeah, but you know, which one would you rather work with? Mm. And they said, oh, well, number three. I said, well, then you've made your decision. Yeah. Because actually, they're a very competent agency. You can see from their, you know, their showreel that they know what they're doing together with you if you like each other you'll yeah. work out the best solution i think you're right never underestimate the importance of the passion of the team you you want to believe that that team want want to win and, and also that you can see yourself working with the people i think that's really really important the other thing you said there the as well who taught, yeah mm. the person who taught me the most about new business though this single individual is a wonderful lady called lindy Payne, and lindy uh, founded the advertising agency register the AAR, oh, yeah. which is now owned by Martin Jones, yeah. who I've known for donkey's years. But Lindy was one of my best mates, and she became a, a big, you know, a big ally of mine when I was new business of YNR. Again, because she liked me for whatever reason. And then when I set up HHL, she was unbelievably helpful. Mm. And I thought she had the best summation of everything. Really, she said to me in one sentence, "She said, Rupert, what you have to understand is clients are looking for mates." who understand their business. Mm. That's what they're looking yeah. for. If they think you could be a mate and that you understand the dynamics of their business, then you will win more pitches than you can imagine. Yeah. So it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a cynical attempt to make friends with clients, but I genuinely tried to do that as part of the process. And sometimes that was difficult because sometimes I didn't like them and they didn't like me. And guess what? We didn't win those pitches. Yes. But most of the time I got to a place with the, with the client where we got pretty damn well. So unless we blew it in the presentation, I knew we were going to win. Mm. And occasionally we did blow it in the presentation. Of course we did. But, you know, we, we were, we, you know, if you think on average in those days, it's, it's pretty much the same now. There are four agencies on a pitch list, maybe five. So on the basis that all are pretty competent, because they are, you've got a 20, 25% chance of winning. So if you strike above 25%, you know, you're doing pretty well. Well, throughout our 10-year full independent history, we struck at 65%. Really? Wow. That's brilliant. You know, and when I was new business director of YNR, we struck at nearly 50%. Mm. And it's it's and I measured it, by the way. Most people never bothered measuring things mm. like that, but I measured everything as well, because I, you know, I do believe following the data which is called yes. a current mantra yes is a pretty sensible thing to do because it tells you things so yeah we measured it and the other thing i used to do is when we didn't win i'd send in my finance partner robin price to do a post pitch analysis with the client which they always were happy to do mm. to find out why we didn't win and it was normally even though they didn't express it like this they didn't like us yes or <laughs> yeah you know or chemistry is they yeah or they couldn't they couldn't see a way that we would be acceptable to their more senior management yeah because we were radical and we were young and ballsy and so on and so sometimes they were scared of what their senior management would think funny enough as time went on we got into you know, uh, after after we'd been agency of the year a couple of times that problem went away because mm. we had credibility and also, I, you know, started being asked to attend board meetings with the whole board, which was something that just doesn't happen nowadays. Yeah. It hardly happened in those days. So myself and my planning partner were the first outsiders ever, ever in history to attend a Lego board meeting. 
so we were flown out to Billund by um, uh, by the by the founders. Uh, I think he's either son or grandson, Kelt Kirk Christiansen, who was a delightful man, mm. absolutely delightful man. And they basically owned Billund in Denmark. Yes. <laughs> and flew and we flew out. He uh, he has a collection of castles and private jets, but he lives in a two up two down in Billund. Extraordinary. Mm. Oh, he did in those days. And we were invited in because he he wanted an outsider to say what the computer games world was going to do to Lego. We basically said it was going to kill it. We were wrong, by the way. But a lot of what we said, we did the old dance of death for them. <laughs> yes. But a lot of what we said, which is that they should embrace the online gaming world and allow, for example, kids to design stuff on their computer that then would print out a building plan using Lego, which they did, yeah. and so on and so forth. But the product, their their product and their brand was stronger than we thought. But things like, you know, I I went into with the launch of Go for British Airways. I I wrote a tiny part of Barbara Cassani's business plan that went we went in to present to Bob Ayling, the boss of British Airways, that became Go. I was with Mike Harris, uh, the main board of Prudential, when we presented um why they should launch a credit card called a yeah um you know so i got invited up into those very senior um levels of companies and big companies which uh just didn't happen to other agencies and i think it was partly because my sort of balls and naivety <laughs> i just thought well why wouldn't they want to meet me? <laughs> I love it. Uh, and actually, I got on pretty well with them. You know, um, you know, Peter Davis, who was chief exec of the crew, the ex-chief exec of Sainsbury's, we ended up getting on pretty well. Uh, although he wasn't a huge fan of my agency, he was a big fan of Abbott Mead, having been the Sainsbury's client. And, uh, you know, Bob Ailing, we got on fine. You know, the guys, you know what I mean? But now, the, 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 you know, the problem for, agency, for, for agencies nowadays is they are further down the food chain, yeah. and that is a problem. But in those days, as I said, that was one of the reasons why we, in, particularly in the early days, we sometimes didn't win pitches. But the critical thing was we went in and asked the question. Yeah. So we always had the data. Why had we won? Why had we not won? That is so important. It goes back actually to what you said at the beginning, which was, um, you know, agencies are looking at the narrow communication, but their clients are looking at the entire business. And something I often say to people is really understand the business problem, because if you can help the client solve the business problem, then you're going to be heroes, you know. Well, the, the, first, the first thing I said when I, when I, when I was doing these masterclasses, uh, I don't do them anymore, but when I did them, is I'd say to the, uh, the agency team, I said, okay, the, what was the last pitch you did? And somebody would say, I don't know, um, doesn't really matter, uh, Toyota cars. I said, did you read their annual report before the pitch? No, not one of them, ever. Never, ever had read the annual report. Oh. I said, well, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. Why wouldn't you read their annual report? I said, it's the most boring document on the planet, yeah. annual report. But it has, it has two really vital things in it and one fun thing in it which are the only three things that you need to read in an annual report the first is the chairman's statement because that will tell you what the shareholders and the board are concerned about happy about worried about and then you read the chief executive statement because that will tell you what the management concerned about worried about as well you don't really need to look at all the numbers maybe the headlines 
then you just want to go to the back and read what the highest paid director is paid. <laughs> a, because that's amusing, but B, because I used to use that whenever I used to then get into debates with procurement about how high our fees were. Oh, <laughs> very good. So I used to say, that's really interesting. So you're telling me that my agency's fees for the year, which are less than your chief executive was paid last year, are too high. Mm. That was always quite a nice. good emotional blackmail one. <laughs> Love it. Um, because we were very premium priced. Yeah. I mean, very premium priced. And um, uh, you know, we, our margins were comfortably the best in the advertising industry. Um, uh, because I said, look, you know, we're the best, we're good. So you know, if you make the best pet food, you'd expect to charge more for it. Yeah. We make the best ads, we're going to charge more for them. Well, something, something I think people forget as well is, um, certainly in my experience, and maybe because I didn't take responsibility for it, but the brief is often not written by the CMO. It's often written by someone a bit more junior. And it's often sort of almost everything we know or, or, or you know, it, it doesn't often tell you exactly. Yeah, it's it a brain dump. Yeah. And so I, I, the first thing I say whenever I've done the pitch training is, the brief is never actually the brief. Your first job is to understand what the real brief is. And that's doing exactly what you said, get under the skin of the financial statement, talk to the CMO. And then the other bit of advice I often give people, which um, came down to, I remember uh, I was in Ireland on a, on, a, on a trade thing for when I was working in soft drinks and we had the Tesco buyer uh, flew over to Ireland to do a presentation on what Tesco's objectives were. And I was up late at night in the bar with him. And he said to me, John, how are you gonna get me promoted? And I'm like, David, what do you mean? He said, well, look, I'm only here for a short time. I've got my eye on the next role. How, what are you going to do as one of my top three, you know, top three suppliers to get me promoted? And it just thought, I thought to myself, do you know what? Actually, that's about right. What am I going to do for him that's going to make him so famous within Tesco and, and within the industry that's going to get, help him succeed sort of thing? You know? And he suddenly realized that a lot of it comes down to, you talked about this earlier, really personal you know, what's the personal situation of the person you're yeah. dealing with and the decision maker? I mean, I always knew that with, with all of my clients. I kind of knew where they were in their career and what they were thinking. And, you know, a lot of them I helped into other roles. Yeah. And in fact, uh, and, part, and again, partly for, for business reasons, because they then, you know, went to a new company and reappointed us. So Jan Smith, the wonderful iconoclast Jan Smith, who was the person who appointed us to launch First Direct for oh, Midland yes. Bank HSBC, yes. then appointed us at uh, Mazda Cars, and then appointed us at the co-op. She <laughs> did three huge appointments. And she did the other two without a pitch. She just moved it oh, straight to us. Aren't they the best situations where you don't even have to pitch because you got the reputation? Yeah, because she knew we were the best, and we, she knew we understood her iconoclasm, uh, which typically was, uh, she always wore a big fedora, and if she took the fedora off when she got into the office, she was in a good mood. And if she left it on, she was in a bad mood. <laughs> so we used to know she still had her hat on just to not, not just not get into any fights. Oh. But if she had her hat off, we could fight her tooth and nail on anything <laughs> and every subject. But you're right about it. you always follow the, the individual, not necessarily the company. I remember um, I, I, when I was in, I, I left uh, Britvic where I was for a few years and, and went in to do a, do a startup and I hired a PR agency and they were, they were, I, I thought I'd try and find someone who's new, you know, going to do work a lot harder for a lower fee because I want to prove themselves. So I ended up working with this agency for, for about three years. 
And then I got the call to go, John, we're really sorry. We have to resign the account. And I'm like, what's happened? What's happened? And they, of course, got a brief from a slightly bigger soft drink brand that was going to pay them twice as much, partly off the back of the work we'd done together. I was really upset. I was just fuming because I thought, you know, all that trust we've built up, the working relationship, I've supported you in the early years. I would never, ever do that. I, it, really, it really hurt me, actually. And, and then about six months later, I then became the CMO at LucasAid, which was about three times the size of the client that they had given me up to take on. And I just thought, look, there's a bit of karma in the world, isn't it? But, you know, that lost loyalty meant they weren't, you know, that you don't know where your client is going to end up, do you? And what they're going to be doing next. But I, I've never done that. No. I've never do that. Dump a client for a bigger one. Uh, just wouldn't do it. And um, I mean, it's interesting talking about Brexit. One of the questions, because I do, I do want to, you know, I want to, to talk about this is that you you asked about um the nature of the client and you know buying good work and so on yeah. and so forth and you mentioned andrew marston who's a friend of mine actually even though in the end he was the person who finally took the well i want to tango ask you about that of course away. yeah <laughs> yeah he took the tango account away from hhl and gave it to chi and i think although i think chi is is one of the best agencies around and johnny hornby's a genius mm. Uh, they've never even touched the lows of the work we did for Tango, let alone the highs. Um, uh, and not, not, neither has anybody subsequently. Uh, so it wasn't Andrew who bought the good work. And yeah, he was uncomfortable with us. But he, the great thing about Andrew is he was always honest with me. Yeah. He always told me right from the outset what his concerns were, why he, you know, what he was worried about. And therefore, it never really came as a shock when mm. the business went, and it was fair enough, and he was decent about it, and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And so we managed to remain friends. But the, the secret with Tango was a client called Tony Hillier. So uh, Britt Vic hired as marketing director this guy called Tony Hillier, who had been the uh, brand manager on Carling, Carling Black Label, and had done or had been there when some of the great Carling Black label work was done, like sort of dam busters and all that kind of stuff. And when Tony got to um, Britvic, he called a pitch straight away. They, Tango had had a terrible campaign with kids, you know, right on kids playing street hockey with a can of Tango rather than a ball. And it was one of those ones which is, you know, so typically of a middle-aged person trying to, be down with the yeah, kids and missing horribly, yeah. <laughs> missing horribly. Anyway, and Tony called the pitch and I met Tony for, for the first time and I said, look, okay, why have you put us on the shortlist? Uh, because by then we started doing some pretty notable work. We'd won the Grand Prix at Cannes for the best ad in the world in 89 for Maxell tapes. Um, and so we were pretty high profile but he also said look you know I thought Stephen Axe your credit partners did the best ever Carling Black Label ads they did the um, uh, Hamlet one which was um, you know um, over here son on the edge you know bouncing the skull yeah and all that sort of stuff they did some great Carling work and um, he said and the truth is and this was the brilliance of his brief he said the truth is what I really want, he said, one of the things that used to really cause me problems at Carling is that, um, and all the anti-booze advertising lobby latched onto this, is that the favourite ad of eight to 12-year-olds was Carling Black Label <laughs> and were not meant to appeal 
for anybody under 18. Yeah. So he said, I suppose what I really want is a lager ad for tango. Lager ad for kids. That's brilliant. No, I want a lager ad for tango. Yeah. Yeah. I want a lager ad for the brand tango that's yeah. aimed at, at, you know, 10 to, to 15 year olds. And that was the genius of his brief, whatever was written by mm. some flunky. And if you, if you deconstruct the semiotics of the great tango ad, it's a lager it ad. Is. Uh, and it just was incredible. I mean, sales increased by 700% almost instantly. Yeah. So what was a, a can gathering dust on the back of a chip shop shelf suddenly became the coolest brand for kids to be seen with. And I mean, it destroyed Fanta. It did, Coke yeah. withdrew Fanta. Yeah. Coke withdrew. This is an astonishing fact. Probably one of my proudest yeah. ever moments because I used to say to clients, the best sign that your ad is working well is if it damages your key competitor, mm. not just enhances you. So I said, look, there's two ways you improve your business. One is lifting yourself up. The other is pushing your, your opponent down. And I said, the best strategies, the greatest strategies on any advertising or any marketing do both those things. So take the AA. If you're the fourth emergency service, what does the RAC do? Yes. They're fucked. Yes. They're, they can't be the fifth yeah. or the sixth. And they can't say they're the second or the first because then they'd upset the police and the ambulance, which is why we said it's the fourth emergency service. And it killed the RAC. I mean, we went from 7 million members and declining to 9.5 million and growing inside two years. It, it mullered them. So that's what great strategies do. They elevate your brand, but they also, whatever the reverse of elevate is, they de-elevate yeah. your opponent's yeah. brand. And that's what Tango did to Fanta. Suddenly Fanta became so uncool, and they were still running ads with Californian, you know, kids, uh, teenagers on the beach, you know, in the sunshine. Yeah. And the Coca-Cola company withdrew Fanta from the UK market. Yeah, I remember for 18 that. months because we killed it. How cool is that? That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember. I mean, I grew up with Tango as my favourite brand of soft drink as a kid, and then my first job after university was at Britvic and back in '97. So, how about that? Well, yeah. Tony then got Tony got um, uh, kind of headhunted to join a sort of entrepreneurial business where he could be a shareholder in the furniture game, mm. which which was fine. And uh, I've forgotten his surname to my utter shame, but Steve, somebody else took over, who was brilliant as well. The bravest, one of the bravest people that I've ever come across. I mean, for example, he let us do this for the Still Tango launch. We did the fake product recall. Uh, yes. A massive trouble. Yes, yes. So we had, and we put him on camera. So it was him yeah. saying, I'm the marketing director of Britain. Yeah. And I'm really sorry. Uh, if you've seen uh, if you've seen um, um, bottles of still tango around, they're a counterfeit product. You shouldn't buy them yeah. at all. And it just went whoops yeah, so yeah. back in two days. Yeah. And we also did a whole campaign of planting empty bottles of still tango in rubbish bins all around festivals and events. So they were sort of full of these empty bottles, and people think, Where, "Where's that? Where can I get that?" Yeah. Yeah. Um, he was incredibly brave. We got into a lot of trouble for that, for, um, uh, you know, uh, damaging the potential seriousness of product recalls. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you about this, right? Because getting into trouble seems to be almost in the DNA of Tango, doesn't it? How much of that was like a conscious? So obviously you had, a, you had 
some ads banned, didn't you? And you had to recall the slap campaign. So how much of the strategy depended? Well, this, yeah, they were slightly different. The first thing is, is, is you, you have to believe this. We never deliberately got anything banned. So you can call that naivety or the triumph yeah. of optimism over realism. But it, it never crossed our minds that, for example, the orange tango slap would become a playground yeah. craze because it was, it was meant to be an analogy for the fact, the hit of orange juice in tango, because tango was, believe it or not, the only orange soft drink. It did, had real it? Orange it had a really high fruit content, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, that was, that, was, that was where it came from. The brief, the brief from the brilliant planner, John Leach, who did it, was this is about the hit of real yeah. orange juice in the taste because uh, everything else like Fanta was totally 100% synthetic um, anyway um, and, and we had no idea and it, it literally became a playground craze craze of going around slapping people we'd seen it more as the sort of Morecambe and Wise uh, yeah. slap um, but anyway it became a craze and uh, in fact we pulled the ad it didn't get back so there's a misconception about that I got a phone call uh, on about the fifth day of the campaign and the guy on the end of the phone said hi um i promise you i'm not one of these usual people who complain i'm a i'm an ent surgeon in in uh, cheshire and he said i just uh, operated on a burst eardrum and going into the anaesthetist i asked the kid what had happened he said i got a tango <laughs> oh, <gun."> no. <laughs> oh so uh, yeah. we pulled it that day and then replaced it with the mm. kiss, which was never quite as good, but it was still yeah. bloody good. And then we went on. So, so we didn't have, um, we had less ads, ads banned than you might imagine, but we had lots of ads that caused controversy. So even the uh, fourth emergency service, because uh, what I'd done is I'd cleared it with the chief of the Metropolitan Police, the head of the ambulance service, um, uh, uh, I, and um, the uh, London Fire Brigade. I had actually talked to the boss man of each of those before we presented the idea oh, to the AA That's in impressive. a pitch. Yeah. We, did, we did present it in a pitch. Yeah. yeah, because I knew that the first thing they would say when we presented it can't was we that. can't yeah. do that. Yeah. So, and literally, again, a fantastic client at the AA who, who's uh, unfortunately passed away now, but he was quite an old guy. And he retired up to Harrogate. I went to see him even after he retired. He was a brilliant man. And in fact, the director general, I kept in touch with until he retired as well, a guy called Bob Chase. And we got to the presentation and I said, I'm going to do an unusual thing in this pitch. I'm going to present you the idea before we present any rationale or strategy. Right up front, because I know you're going to have a problem <laughs> with it. So they looked at me like I was really strange. So I said, you know, I basically, we did a video cam. We took video cameras out. One of the things we did for any pitch is really, really kind of get under the hood of the product. And what we did with the AA is we went out with the patrols. Incidentally, amazingly, we were the only agency that actually went out with one of the patrols and worked with the patrols for yeah. a couple of days and took a video camera. And we had on camera people um, who, uh, by the side of the road, who the AA was sorting out. And we interviewed them and they kept saying things like, you know, I can't tell you how happy I am that they're here. This was a real emergency. They kept using the word mm. emergency. And I remember asking one of them was a woman. I said, what, what, what do you mean a puncture is an emergency? 
She said, well, I've got to get to my mm. kids to school. She said, look, my kids are sitting in the car. They're late for school. They're going to get into trouble. It's an emergency. And another person said, I've got to get to the airport. Mm. You know, I, it's, I, I, you, and so I played this to the management of the AA and I said, you're not a breakdown service. You're an emergency yeah, service. In fact, you're the fourth emergency service in people's minds alongside the police, the fire brigade and the ambulance. They said, we can't <laughs> say that. So I said, hang on a second. And then I played them video on video ahead of the London fire brigade, the London thing saying, actually, we see these guys as another emergency service right. alongside us. And the client hit the table. He went, we can do this. And I knew I'd won the pitch 10 minutes into the pitch. It's a great, great pitch test in that. But what an idea, though. What a great idea. And it, the idea, funnily enough, didn't come from a planner. It came from the art director. We were sitting in the room for the sort of first pitch, you know, powwow, sort of idea sharing. Myself, the account director is called Misha. Liz and Dave, who were the creative team, who went on to do some, they, they actually, uh, Liz wrote, does what it says on the tin. And we were talking about this sort of what happened by the side of the road. And Misha, the account director, saying, you yeah, know, and I talked to this person about that and that and that. And it was Dave suddenly, who never said anything. He was a classic art director who never, <laughs> never spoke. <laughs> Just sort of sat there. He, he ended up being a very good um, ad director, actually. And he said, well, they're just another emergency service, aren't they? He said, they're like, you know, the fourth emergency service. And we all looked at each other and went, fucking hell, that, that is yeah. genius. And then the only thing we had to change is we, uh, I always used to sort of try and have informal discussions with Clearcast. They, they, they weren't called mm. that in those days. I can't remember what they were called, uh, but they're called Clearcast nowadays. And I'd, I'd sometimes, if I thought something was controversial, would have a sort of off the record with them. And they said, well, you can't say that because the thing about the emergency services is that they're available to 100% of the population and the AA isn't. So we added, and it made it stronger, mm. to our members were the fourth emergency service, which actually then made membership even more valuable. So the, the truth of the matter is it did take a brave client uh, uh, to buy quite a lot of mm. our ideas and a very strong client and somebody had a very secure relationship with their boss because you know we would quite often have uh, chief exec say to us well on your heads be it to me <laughs> and the client and fortunately the vast majority of the time it was hugely successful but we had our failures yeah. you know and, and the great thing is I never, ever in the, in the 10 years of the independent history of HHCL when I was running it, I never, ever, ever had a client turn around to me and say, this is your fault. Uh, how dare you do this to me? You've ruined my career. You've ruined my life or anything like that. Literally never, ever. And that was, again, because we had this relationship yeah. with honesty, trust and respect. So I, I had never conned them into buying an ad. I'd always, I'd always shared with them why, why I thought it would work and where the risks were. And I think I've talked to you before, John, about, again, how we manage the research process. Because I used to say to all the clients, conventional research will reject yeah. many of our best ideas. And so we used to insist, we always had a pre-research meeting 
if the client insisted on watching through a mirror, and we always used to advise them not to mm. because it would pollute their thinking, and the whole point of having a moderator is they're there to interpret for the client. It's a bit like, well, I can't, remember, can't think of a decent analogy right now, but you know, there's no point employing a mechanic and then soon they're telling them you know, how to mend the engine. The whole point of a great researcher is they could interpret what people were saying. If you watch through a, a mirror and you're not expert, you unfortunately believe people what I know. they say. Because most of the time, most of the time they don't mean what they say. They're just trying to be helpful. And, and their way of being, well, their way of being helpful is to bring you back to the norm or to the average, which in advertising is the biggest sin of all. Because, you know, when you're subjected to whatever it is, 1,500 commercial messages a day, and people only yeah. remember three, being average is effectively like burning totally. your mind. And the thing that used to really, really bother me about it was when someone sees my poster for the first time, they have not just sat through two hours of focus group with someone explaining the strategy and the idea. So the only thing that matters is what do people feel and think the moment they see it? That, that, that's what you've got to capture. Absolutely right. And of course, that's slightly moderated in if you see a TV ad five, ten times yeah. and so on. But even yeah. then, you know, the attention span is, is minimal. And, and, but I was always, you know, we'd always say to clients in a pre-research meeting, so for example, it's not, a, it's not the best example, but fourth emergency service, we said to the client, well, people will obviously say, you know, you can't say that, how dare you do that, blah, 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 blah. So the moderator will have to show them what the head of the police think and all that, which is a bit unusual in a focus group, but there's no point doing the focus group unless yeah. you realise that this is all going to be, and then, then, you know, you ask the question of assuming this was supported by the police, the fire brigade and the ambulance, what do you think of positioning the AAs? And then people just said, well, yeah, yeah they are a bit yeah. like that, aren't they? And of course, the interesting thing is the best thing of the lot is I got invited by the client to present to all, they had an annual sort of conference of all the patrols. I mean, literally not all of them because they got some out on the road, but they'd have half a day and do, do the presentation twice. So they have half the patrols in the morning and half the patrols in the afternoon where they could get to Basingstoke. And I presented this idea. You could see oh, the check because most yeah. of them are ex-military. Most of them are ex-military. You could see the chest yeah. come out. It's like, we're not just some fucking greasy mechanic who happens to have a yellow van. We're like the police, the fire brigade yeah. and the ambulance. All of whom, particularly in those days, including the police, had amazing yeah. reputations. I mean, nowadays, the police have a slightly less positive reputation, but nonetheless, yeah. mostly very positive. Fire brigade and ambulance are the heroes of our they are. country. Totally. And they were sort of being put alongside this. So what it did for internal morale and employee stuff, and I used to say to clients a lot, I say, actually, just as important as your target audience is your yeah. employees. Your employ I, this ad is aimed at your employees mm. as well. They should feel proud to be associated with this brand. You know, and, and we need, constant, therefore, you need not to as, just assume because they work yeah. for Britvic that they're going to like the Tango ad. You need to take the trouble to explain to all the staff why you're doing what you're doing. Tony, Tony and Steve were brilliant at that, at bringing the company with them. That is one of them, the most important. I think a lot of agencies miss that because in, in the pitch training I do, I, I often say your customers have a customer. Don't forget, you may be, they may be the customer in this little transaction, but they have got to go and share the work. They've got to get sign off at the board. They've got to brief it to the sales team. They've got to show the service to, you know, um, it, it, there's a whole lot of people that depend 
on the success of what you're creating. And, and, and the more you can arm them with what they need, you know, to sell it on and to, you know, the, the better, really. The other thing I think in your story that really hit home for me, actually thinking about, I know we talk a lot about pitching here, but it's good, um, that hit home to me actually was the, how profound it is when you see an agency really go out of their way to understand the real situation, like you did with going to, with the AA vans to the side of the road and talk to somebody in an emergency. I think some of the best pictures I've been involved in have been where the agency on Gatorade, as an example, where they've, they've gone out and done five aside and they've, they've been in this, you know, the situation with our target audience and really understand it and come back with the videos. And that I think is just, because you you want to know that your agency understands the business and that they care. Well, Robin White, who's a, another great friend of mine and, and, you know, founder of WCRS, one of the great agencies, Robin always had a mantra, which is interrogate the product until it confesses to its strength. You know, but that is true. You know, you, you can't do enough research on understanding mm. the product and the and the people involved in the mm. product and all those kind of things. So th this sort of... You know, I still think a lot of agencies have this notion that, you know, that they, you know, have a look at the product, look at the brief and then disappear into a room for two weeks and a puff of white smoke will come out and they'll come up with a genius solution. Well, of course, it can happen. But the, the best agencies um, in history have always uh, followed the old Gary Player mantra, which is, yeah. um, you know, the harder they practice, the luckier, luckier they get. get so true you know we were just incredibly hard working i was explaining because as you know i share quite a number of businesses nowadays including some startups and somebody they, they weren't compla complaining is too strong word, but somebody made some comment about working till midnight on sunday to me the other day and i said i didn't have a day off for five years mm. they said oh come on i said no 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 i went into my office every saturday and sunday for the first five years of the existence of hhcl as did not all of our staff, and in fact, we encouraged our staff, particularly as we got to years three, four, five, not to come in. Mm. But the founders we'd been doing stuff, yeah. we, we, were, we were there nonstop. And you can only do that if you've got an incredibly supportive family, which, mm. you know, it, I was incredibly lucky. You know, my wife effectively brought up the kids almost on her own. We were in there every day. And in fact, my first two, the only two holidays I had in that first I'm slightly exaggerating. I think it was three years, actually, not yeah. five years. The only two holidays I had in those first three years were paid for by my clients. Oh, really? So, <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, the first one, and there's a story behind this, was Thames Television. But uh, the guy at Thames Television, who was one of my first clients, in fact, he, he went into a contract race with Danepack to be my first client and won it. So it was actually our very, very first client was Thames Television. And uh, the sales director there, Jonathan Shire, about a year in, said to me, he said, I, I can't remember how the topic of holidays came up. And I just laughed and said, well, don't be ridiculous, Jonathan. Of course, I'm not going on holiday. I've started a business and stuff like that. He said, well, it's ridiculous. You've got to have a break. So I tell you, we've got a ski trip next week. Why don't you and Claire come on it? This was for obviously for media buyers. So there were a bunch of media buyers and, and me and Claire taken by Thames Television on a ski trip. So we had three days skiing holiday. And then about um, three years in, I was talking to the chairman of Molson, the Canadian brewer. And their chairman of their company was a wonderful man who became a good friend called Norman Seagram, who was from the Seagram family. And Eric Molson was on the board as well, but Norm was the chairman. He was a little sort of 
five foot six, pocket rocket, bullet, <laughs> bald, bullet headed, hard guy. And we did, we did a great campaign to launch Molson in the UK, which uh, had the rather convoluted end line of Jim Dunk says, don't drink it. And it was basically this guy, and it was his real name, Jim Dunk, who basically was, um, uh, loved Molson so much, he wouldn't let anybody else have it. So in fact, it was a precursor to the Walker's Crisp campaign with Gary Lillian. Uh, yeah. It was exactly yeah. the same idea. They just copied our Yes, idea. yes, yes. Um, and Jim Dunk says, don't drink it. Anyway, and I remember we, I had a great client again, but very nervous, who, who, who insisted I went out to Canada to present. We'd won the pitch. This was not the idea that won the pitch. It was a development idea. And um, I went out to Canada to present to the, to the a, a committee of the board with Norm, Eric Molson. So it's pretty, you know, pretty big wig types and presented the Jim Dunk idea. And... Uh, I remember Norm looking, he, he sort of hunched down, he looked down the end of the boardroom table to me. He said, well, Robert, he said, it's brave, but I like it. <laughs> and I again, knew he was then going to run it. And it was very, it was very successful. And, um, you know, again, I'd explained to Norm that, um, you know, he was going up against a body of brilliant creative work. Because in those days, the lager advertising, I mean, you had... Couldn't that, give a full. That was the heyday, wasn't it? Yeah. Darling yeah. Black Label, you had George the Bear before it all got yeah. sort of effectively banned. That well, having fun in lager ads yes. got banned yeah. effectively. Yeah. So now they're all poncy load of tosh. Um, but they were brilliant. I said, You've got no chance with your budget against that lot unless we do something completely ridiculous. <laughs> so my favorite execution of it was Jim outside a pub. And he's drinking a Molson. And he said, he said, you know, Molson Canadian lager, it's fresh brewed, this, that, and the other, and the other. He said, why would you, why would you drink anything? He said, he said, oh, no, that's right. He said, this all great. He said, it's all great. He said, but I do not think you should drink that. You'd be much better off drinking this. And you pan out, and there's a tanker delivering lager through a huge fucking pipe to the pub. And he sort of goes on, he said, this is much better. He said, it's mass produced. You know, he said, it's fantastic stuff, this. And uh, it so upset the rest of the lager community. And of course, what that did is lift the profile of Molson yeah. amongst publicans and everybody else, because that was part of our target audience. And, and again, that comes back to, you know, the ad didn't get banned, but it was controversial because it, basically said all other lagers have come out of a tanker, which they do. Yeah. Um, yeah. As it happens. As it happens. Well, Whereas ours was bottled. Ours was not draft. It yeah. was bottled and imported. Yeah. It was totally imported Molson Canadian. Uh, and it was the original stuff. No, in fact, it was made in a huge fucking brewery in, in Toronto and <laughs> Montreal. It's beside the point. Yes. It arrived in a nice little bottle. It did. And, um, you know, we got, we, you know, I think the thing we were really brilliant at was when we got into trouble was turning the tables yeah. and making it a benefit to the client, not a problem. Yeah. So I always remember uh, on Tango, you may not know this one, but we had one execution which had a, a sort of Giles cartoon granny with orange balloons, but she comes out with a hat pin and you think she's going to burst the balloons, but she blows up instead. Uh. Okay. So uh, Exploding Granny, it was called. And it was, and you go, whoa, sorry, I wasn't expecting that, you know. And uh, so a hit of real oranges. And she was all dressed in sort of orange plaid and she blew up, not the balloons. Anyway, so I get a phone call from The Sun. 
uh, and the sun, well, I, the sun didn't know me, but they phoned the agency, obviously it got put through to me. And it said, look, um, we've, had, we've had complaints about, you know, explaining granny that, that this is sort of ageist and, you know, and is disrespectful to old age people. So I said, really, no. have you got any comment? I've got no comment, I said, no, honestly. I mean, I, I said, who made that complaint? They said it was somebody from uh, age concern. I said, oh, well, okay. Anyway, so the sun that day, Prince uh, has in its comment column, third, you know, they always used to have three comments and their comment column. The third one saying, you know, Tango's taking it too far now, age concern, are very concerned, you know, blowing up granny's disrespectful old people, we should honor our old people. Anyway, so I phone up the age concern and get through to the director general of age concern. I said, I've only got one question for you. Have you actually seen the ad? He said, no, I haven't. Uh -huh. Son phoned me up and explained it to me. It sounds absolutely horrendous. Oh. I said, have you got a video recorder? He said, yeah. I said, can I bike one round to you? He said, yeah, of course. I bike it round. So anyway, I phoned him up and I said, um, what do you think now? He said, it's hilarious. Yeah. Said, no, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Anyway, I said, okay. So I rang the sun up and I said, uh, just so you know, Age Concern have withdrawn their complaint and it's not a problem. Oh, okay, they said. The next morning, their lead leader column said, have Age Concern got nothing better to do than oh, complain about Oh, no. Oh, so first no. off, that taught me about tabloid newspapers, which is they create the controversy and then comment on the controversy and then and then complain about the controversy they've created oh but it also taught me you can turn things around just by doing a little bit of homework and having the balls to call somebody up and say do you want and in the end tango got great pr out of it. but you've just described what's wrong with social media haven't you which is everyone's commenting on the comment and no one's actually done the research to find out whether the original thing is right or wrong well the classic one was the instant i mean whatever you think of it the instant sort of attack on the government's race report which came within a minute. They cannot have read it. They cannot have read it. So these were pre-prepared complaints and their complaints may be valid, but at least have the intelligence to wait for as long as it would take to read it and analyze it. I, I, I read a lot of comments and listened to a lot of discussion on LBC from people that had, had a strong opinion who hadn't read it and admitted they hadn't read it. And then they're reacting to what they read about it, which I think is very, the secret to pitching new business, agency success, agency failure, it, it, I mean, in the end, you, you have to have the, the talents in place, yeah. but it does come down to relationships. And, you know, I think the reason why I was good at new business and HHL was successful at new business rather than then successful at the ads, which we were as well, was because I'm, I'm good at building relationships. Mm. And uh, I like, I enjoy building relationships. And I am not remotely interested in the status of who I build relationships with, mm. never have been. Yeah, sure, it's sexy to meet Jeff Bezos and Jerry Yang and all that stuff. But I'm just as in, I'm just as interested in building a relationship with their PA because I know in the end they don't give a fuck about me. But if the PA might, because most people don't bother to take the time to get to know them, and um, and I enjoy, but I enjoy that. I don't just do it for the effect, although I like the effect. I enjoy doing that. I find that a good thing to do. 
it is it's one of those it's one of the reasons why um i probably would be a very bad politician and and it's the big flaw the big flaw in boris johnson which is i like to be liked and the only way you can be liked is if you put yourself out there and you create those relationships and i like i like to be liked i'm perfectly happy to accept not being liked in which case then i just that becomes somebody i completely blank out in my life and to me to me they don't exist anymore but if if i get on with people then i'll do anything for them and i find that people will do things for me and and i think i think it was it's that that is at the core of um being able to build those relationships if you look at any successful service business which the advertising business is if you haven't got that you never reach the heights you might be able to hit if you've got genius you can do well but you need to do really well i think uh, i think you need that ability to build relationships um and you know everything flows from that 100 i i i've so seen that in my career the, the, the people i respect most that have really transformed businesses have just had that ability to convince anybody of anything and build trust really really quickly and 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 authentically and uh, I, I, everything else follows from that doesn't it you know if you've got that it, it, the, the the business will flow afterwards so so th th this probably explains doesn't it because one thing i was going to ask you about is you had this incredible 10 years sold sold the business and then and then it, it hit a challenging moment and we were talking a bit earlier weren't we about the the moment andrew pulled you off the tango um work so how did that conversation go how did he i mean you, you, you i think you said that he was very good at sort of managing you know yeah he was I, mean, so I, I wasn't you see by that stage i was running chime yeah the agency and i've been asked many many times um why the um you know um why the decline in hhl happened uh and did i regret the sale to chime and they're two different things so and it's worth worth just covering i mean the sale to chime happened for the best of reasons um we had turned down and you i'm sure you would um see this would be the case we turned down every offer in town yeah. i mean everybody was trying to buy us every major agency so i turned down the yr deal that became rainy kelly campbell rolf yr mm. which was um robert campbell and mt rainey's uh, terrific agency that did the yr deal i was offered that deal two years before in fact i was offered a bribe by the senior management of yr in new york of a million dollars if i put the deal across the line wow so i said well no I said, well, I don't do that, um, that you just put a million dollars on the price that will be shared equally amongst all the shareholders. Um, but I turned it down um, because I, every, every sale of a great agency to a big multinational that I'd ever seen had led to a complete dilution of the ethos of that agency and only a marginal increase in the performance of the other agency i do think um adam and eve with um ddb might be the exception to the rule in recent times but there are very 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 few that have ever managed that process so we were reluctant to do it mm. but we had to do something and the official line we always gave is we were made an offer we can't refuse which is true i mean 
um, you know, uh, Chime and WP Boyle, Martin Sorrell, because Sorrell put the cash element of the deal in, you know, they paid uh, 12 times profits for us, which, you know, is about as rich as it gets. And, um, you know, we, we, I used to say publicly, well, you know, we couldn't turn that down, but that wasn't the real reason. The real reason was that Adam Lurie, our planning partner, wanted to get out of the business. And we'd always said, you know, if any of us wanted to get out, we'd commit to each other in five-year chunks. So five years in, we all committed, the five of us who founded the company, we all committed to each other for another five years. And in fact, we then pulled in when we became HXL and partners, Chris Satterthwaite, who went on to be chief exec of Chime after me. Chris is one of my best mates. We pulled him in as a founder of the new HXL and partners and him and his team committed for five years. So we were approaching our 10th year anniversary. Are we going to recommit to each other for another five years? And Adam said, I know I'm, I've, I don't want to do it anymore. I want to go and write books. And we had long, hard discussions about could we replace Adam with somebody in-house? And in fact, the guy who was the planner on Tango would have been the candidate, John Leach, who's brilliant. But I started feeling it was more me than anybody else that I'd sort of had enough of it. I'd, I'd been carrying this business from a business perspective, yeah. all the stuff we talked about yeah. earlier, for 10 years, and I was tired. You know, I'd done it from the age of 30 to the age of 40. Uh, I'd had three years of no holidays. I'd then had, you know, another seven years of certainly no days off, even when on holiday, and just sort of constant, constant work. And I was sort of, I was ready for a, not a change of pace, but a, a change of context a, a bit. And Tim who had founded Chime by then, Tim had constantly been saying to me, come on, come on, we could put our businesses together. You know, he had what was regarded as the best PR business in the UK, independent, and we had the best, comfortably, the best advertising business. And we were mates and so on. So it made so much sense. The issue had always been, how are we going to run things? And how's he going to pay for us? Because we were bigger than Bell Possinger. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, in terms of profits and mm. revenue, we were bigger, mm. um, even though Chime was a public company. So they could have raised money on the markets and so on. And then Sorrel came in because Sorrel had been trying to buy HHCL for ages and wanted me wanted to put it into Ogilvy's or Thompson's or I see. any of those. Yeah. I got offered all of those. Yeah. So Sorrel said, look, I will fund the deal effectively. So basically the money we got for HHCL, we got half in time shares and half in cash, which is what Sorrel put in. And then he ended up with 21% of the enlarged shine. Uh, which he still had, well, he, not he still has, WP still has. And Tim and I thought this is going to be great. He didn't want to do any of the PLC stuff. I was fascinated by taking that on as a new challenge. I'd never done it before. I'd only worked for a big multinational or been an entrepreneur. I'd never run a public company. And suddenly I was going to be chief executive of PLC, listed on the main market as well, not AIM, it was yeah. main market. And Tim hated all that. He hated the city and he just, he loved being with clients and politicians. And so I thought this is going to be great. And we had a year's earn out that went brilliantly well. We smashed it, got another 3 million on top of the price. Um, all great. I handed over then to, you know, other people. And I suppose, I suppose 
I suppose this is this is sort of blowing my own trumpet, but it was never the same without me. And uh, I think I, what I gave it was, I gave the company its daily energy. Mm. And uh, without that energy, it lost a bit of the sparkle. It still had the genius, but less of the sparkle. Mm. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm not brilliant at multitasking. It's why the new business director role being taken off existing clients works so well for me. Yeah. I love that sort of single focus. And my attention turned almost exclusively to the city and sorting out Chime, which was a bit of a mess um, because Tim didn't care about that stuff. He cared about the clients. And I thought this is going to be great. He cares about the clients. I'll care about the city. All good. And actually, for a year, we thought we were geniuses and we cracked the code, particularly because we did together the whole creation and launch of Go for British Airways. So I'd won the Go pitch. Um, Barbara Cassani was based in our offices because she wanted to be physically away from British Airways. Um, the pilots were all interviewed in our agency and all that stuff. Um, uh, we got involved in the naming. We, I introduced her to Wolf Olins to do the design because I'd done first direct with Wolf Olins, who were brilliant. Um, and then I said, right, and, you know, and Bell Pottinger should do the PR. And they did a brilliant job. And I remember Tim and I sitting down after the successful launch ago saying, we fucking cracked it at last. We can go to a client saying we can do everything for you from naming, design, advertising, PR. Could, now, Tim, I'm a good salesman, but Tim was a great salesman, the best I've ever seen. Could we, could we get any other clients to give us the totality of their comms business? <laughs> no, we couldn't. And, of course, we realised the impediment was that in the vast majority of companies, the advertising and marketing budget was held by the CMO, but the PR budget was held by the director of corporate affairs. And typically they hated each other. I mean, properly hated each other. Everyone used to say, oh, CFOs and CMOs hate each other. No, they don't. Yeah. They don't always understand each other. But CMOs and corporate affairs always hated yeah. each other because it was jealousy over the budget. Yeah. And we could not. The only time we ever got it to work was startups where you didn't have those people. You just had the founder and got on with it. Anyway, so that was the first problem. So there were three problems that happened that caused the demise of HXL. So first is that um, um, uh, I took my eye off the ball and focused on the city. The second was that the proposition, although beautiful on paper, struggled in practice. And then third, WPP that had promised us interested access to its networks shoved, us, shoved the agency, and I should have known better, into Red Cell, which was a dog's dinner run by an idiot. And uh, it just never worked. And it never could have worked. And I should have not allowed it. But I had my eye on other mm. things. So it was my fault to a great degree. And then... Once it became clear that HXL was not going to flourish in that regime, that it was too late really to rescue it. A lot of the talent had seen the writing on the wall and had gone. Mm. I was not to go back in and rebuild it, which was one of the options. I just personally yeah. couldn't do it. Yeah. Couldn't do it. And then later down the line, the thing that led to me leaving Chime was. And I should have guessed this, much as I loved him to his dying day, 
he was astonishingly conservative in both the small C and a big C. I didn't mind the big C bit, but small C conservative, he hated change. Mm. And, Ch and Chime needed to change in so many ways. And I particularly was interested in building up sport marketing. He didn't want to do that. I did not. So in the end, he, he, he didn't want to do any of the stuff I wanted to do as chief executive. And I had two options, either to oust him, which I was never going to do, A, because he was not a good enemy to have, and B, because I liked him, and C, because it was his company to start with. And so I just, on the, the anniversary, I'd done a five-year handshake with Tim and Martin Sol to say I'd do five years minimum. And I left on the anniversary of the fifth year of selling HHL to Chime, I left. And uh, they tried everything to keep me, I mean everything, uh, but I was, I'd had it. I, um, and that's because I couldn't do it. And in fact, Chris Sathwaite was a much better chief exec of Chime than I ever would have been. And he built Chime into the biggest sport marketing business and all that. Yeah. Because after I'd gone, Tim yeah. sort of retreated a bit into his own world of just looking after class. He actually let Chris do all the things and more that um, not all the things. So he, there were a few things I wanted to do that Chris was allowed to do. And then Chris had much bigger and better ideas that he was then also allowed to do hmm. and built it into a very successful business till it was bought by private equity, which I was delighted about because I still had lots of shares. Oh, good. Excellent. Well, there's, there's a good, a happy ending in that sense. Yeah. And Chris is a great mate as well. But you've, you've touched on something I think really uh, important uh, is the, the role of founders and how you can't you know, it's very rare to be able to replace founders or, or integrate into bigger networks, isn't it? I mean, you see it so often as and a book I've, I've read, which I, I love is a founder's mentality, looking at the difference in market valuation between founder led businesses and management led businesses. And it's, it's quite profound, isn't it? The, you know, you talked about the hard work, the relationships you've got, you just can't easily replace that. Well, it's true. That is true. But on the other hand, then look at examples like, you know, what, uh, Bill Gates did with Steve Ballmer, what, um, what uh, Steve Jobs did with, with Tim Cook, mm. is there comes a point actually where all of that flips on its head and a founder is an impediment to a business growing because the nature of founder entrepreneurs is that they're control freaks. They, they care too much about everything. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's true. And there comes a point when you get to a certain size where you need professional managers and the founder needs to get the hell out of the way or go into an advisory role. And in fact, Sergey uh, you know, and Bryn have done that, yeah. haven't they, at Google? So, so you know, letting Larry take over and run it. But we're talking there about companies that got into the billions. Yeah. The, the problem with ad agencies is they, well, A, they never get to that size. And so where's the point in the timeline and size line where you can actively hand over? And the trouble is it hardly ever, hardly ever reaches that, that perfect inflection point mm. because they never get that big. I mean, BBH have probably done it better than anybody else handing over, uh, but they did that by only selling 49% to publicists and therefore keeping control. And they got to a big enough size by opening their own international offices to be able to fund out the, fund the founders, you know, because John Bartle went first yeah. and then effectively um, Hegarty and then effectively Nigel, mm. all, of, all of whom are good mates mm. of mine and very, were very helpful to me in my advertising, building the agency. That's the other weird thing about advertising is we compete tooth and nail yes. during the day, but people were incredibly helpful yeah. uh, aside that, you know, 
Mike Greenlee's, uh, uh, Gold Greenlee's trot was just down the road from us. Mike Greenlee's is one of my best mates, you know, now. He, you know, they lent us a photocopier when I was broke just before a pitch. <laughs> you know, it's kind of agencies help each other. It's weird. It's kind of a nice little community. But that's partly because it's a village and it's small. It is, yeah. And therefore that that notion of handing over to a second tier or something is very hard to manage. Very, very hard. Yeah. Very hard to manage. And I, you know, I've got that in my um in 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 uh, one of my existing chairmanships and at some point we'll have it with system one group yeah which is which is how do you manage how do you manage that process yeah because it is it is um it's difficult it is really, it's really very few people do it and it's it needs two it needs two sides to tango it needs the founder to let go mm. and it needs the management team to really take up the slack mm. and the slack is multi-dimensional and deep it is isn't it and you need to get the individuals that can replicate that founder's behavior like you talked about the obsession with customers the the hard work you know all, all that all that energy that you bring you know you have to try and replace that yeah i'm not i wouldn't use the word replicate john i would because if the time is right unless it happens because yeah. they get run over by a bus which is different but if it's a voluntary and timely handover, it should be because some of what's needed has changed mm. because you've grown to a certain size where it needs different skill sets. So yes, you've got to keep the passion and energy, but there might be there might be some skill sets that are no longer needed and others that are newly yeah. acquired. And I, you know, the interesting thing about, I mean, I don't know if you've watched the uh, Gates documentary. It's quite old now, but it's called Inside Bill's Brain. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't left Microsoft. He's still there chairing the board, but he's really genuinely let the management run it. Yeah. And he's gone off. And what, what, like any obsessive like him, he had to get obsessed with something else. And he's yes. obsessed <laughs> with his foundation and, you know, and eradicating polio and et cetera, et cetera. But he's still got his wisdom in there. Mm. And, you know, founders getting ousted is not a good idea unless they want to be ousted. It's much better to somehow harvest their wisdom in a, in a, in a more informal way yeah. going forward. That makes sense. And that's why you end up with, you know, advisory things or whatever. Anyway, let's, let's not get sidetracked. What I've, um, what I've seen in my career happen time and time again, actually, is, is that that professionalization management takeover happens too early in so many cases in the, in the life stage of the brand. And, and actually what was on you know, what was on a rocket fuel growing quickly starts to slow down because you behave like a much bigger corporate organization and you lose the entrepreneurial, uh, you know, kind of, you know, uh, low, bureaucracy fast moving you know you know great culture that made the company a success so i think for me you know spending a lot of time looking at this and looking at different companies i think it's timing and it's understanding life stage and and that kind of thing you can often kill something particularly when it's small. definitely um, no definitely it, there's no question that in retrospect we the sort of handover hxl happened too early mm. And if we'd done another five years, I think we would have been able to open international offices and we'd have had a path more similar to BBH. Yeah. But do I regret it? Well, no, not really, because HHCL achieved, I mean, I have moments where I think, oh, I'm being interesting. 
HHL achieved astonishing things. I mean, it was Agency of the Decade, won Grand Prix at Cannes, still talked about in reverence, still everybody, and I mean everybody who worked there says it's the best place they have ever worked, ever. It was an amazing environment we created for, to let talent flourish. We were diverse before it was required uh, in lots of different ways. And, uh, it, you know, I'm very proud of all that. But if we hadn't done what we'd done, I would never have been a public company chief executive, which taught me a huge amount mm. that I was able to bring to bear in other things, but also has prepared me for what I do now. Um, the McCann thing would never have happened. I mean, what a weird thing that was for me to go from, you know, the best agency in the world to probably the worst. And, uh, you know, and to just to see why the biggest agency in the world could be so good in some places and so bad in others. And it was the worst agency in the world in London, but it was the best agency in Norway, in Italy, you know, in I mean, in loads of places. It was the best agency in that country. And of course, what is it down to? It's down to the people. It is. 100%. It's down to the people. Yeah. And I discovered, which is why I ended up leaving McCann, there was an inverse relationship between the um, engagement of the Americans and the success of the office. Yeah. Makes sense. So every time the, American, the Americans came over who were the two top Americans were two of the biggest arseholes it's ever been my misfortune to come across. Deeply unpleasant human beings, big chips on both shoulders, come from wrong side of the tracks, greedy beyond anything I'd ever seen, didn't give a fuck about the clients, didn't give a fuck about the work, only cared about their own personal wealth. I mean, mm. honestly, I'm not exaggerating. Horrible people. And every time they came across to Europe, which fortunately was only once a year for the big tour around to do the budgets, it took me a month, and I was only there three years, took me a month to repair the damage. Because they, the, I would have grown men come out of meetings crying because they were so foul. You know, I had one guy, I mean, just this is, this is actually a minor example. I had a brilliant bloke, lovely man who ran the office in Belgium which was a pretty successful office, but he had a comedy Clouseau accent. So his, his French, his, his British English accent was, I mean, really extreme, like Clouseau. And about three minutes into his presentation, the first time I'd been in these round presentations, the global chief executive American said, I can't fucking understand you. Why don't you fucking speak English, you fucking cunt? Oh, no. Right? And I said, hang on, hang on, John. I said, hang on, hang on. He speaks a lot better English than we do French. Yeah. I, fucking, I can't fucking understand him. Right? And this guy, I mean, I had to pick up the pieces for a oh. month after that. He said, you know, I said, no, he doesn't hate you. Come on, he's just a stupid yank. Come on, let's forget that. You know, you, you know in the end, you, he did, did he approve your budget? Yes, well, then it's all over. <laughs> and I had to do that. And after three rounds of doing that i just couldn't take it anymore they were such arseholes oh. and um so uh they didn't like me either by the way so uh <laughs> he used to call me he used to call me that damn lining literally really? believe it or not they'll use that word the yeah. damn lining. he was irish oh, american jeez 
my, my, my final death knell came because the holding company IPG were forced by uh, Wall Street because at that time uh, McCann had been under an SEC or Interpublic had been under an SEC investigation. So I had to make 104 offices Sarbanes-Oxley compliant, which I've got to tell you, that's a job. hilarious. In <laughs> well, it's hilarious, particularly in places like Greece and Turkey, yeah. where you have to say you can't bribe clients anymore. And the bloke in Greece, who was a really top bloke, he opened, I kid you not, this is not exaggerating, he opened a drawer in his desk and it had an array of Rolexes. He said, well, what am I going to do with what all these? Oh, that's brilliant. He said, these, these are, the, these are the, what I give the clients, you know, to win pitches yeah. in Greece. And he said, well, I bought loads of jet skis to give them as well. What am I going to do with those? I said, <laughs> you're going to have to sell them. You're, you cannot bribe clients anymore. I then had to fire the boss in Turkey. And I put in a lovely guy called Tanker, who was American educated and kind of understood why we had to be Sarbanes-Oxley compliant. And he rang me, he said, he said, Rupert, our, our biggest client is up for review in Turkey. It's Turkcell. Uh, and he said, uh, I've got a slight problem. He said, because I've discovered that part of the arrangement is $50,000 in a brown envelope goes to the prime minister's office. Oh, no. I said, well, you can't do it, Tanker. He said, well, we'll lose the account. I said, you can't do it. We're so, we have to be Sarbanes-Oxley compliant. So he rang me 24 hours later. He said, well, mate, we, we've lost the account. Wow. <laughs> and uh, so I had to do all of that as well. Uh, and I got it all done. I got it all done. So every McCann EME office became Sarbanes-Oxley compliant. We had record new business for three years, doubled the margins of 7 to 14%. But I ended up hating the Americans with a passion. And they hated me. And I said, an IPG did this... Um, succession management study and um, I was told this by the CFO of IPG later is that they came around to McCann and they said well obviously John you know John your replacement would be Rupert Howell and he said oh my dead body with that fucking line he get my job <laughs> and uh, I was out within three months but it, the good thing is I was technically fired because the only good thing about American companies is their severance is spectacular I bought a, a boat and a DB9 as with part of my settlement. Oh, well done. Well um, done. Okay. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, he beat me to it by about a month. He said, it's so funny. The Americans are so funny. He said, can we go out for a cocktail after, after the board meeting? And I know um, that's like their language for let's go for a beer or, you know, you, you signal, don't you, with yeah. alcohol, what kind of discussion you yeah. want. And for the Americans, we're going for a cocktail means man to man. Yeah. And uh, going for a beer means having fun. Going for a cocktail means we need to have a man-o-man-o -man discussion. So he said, look, Rupert, he said, I can't argue with your record in Europe. It's, it's terrific. You've hit every target. But, you know, you, you just won't follow, you know, my, my directions. Mm. And I said, well, John, I've explained why not. Because if I followed them, everything that I've achieved in Europe would go in the other direction. Yeah. And he said, well, I don't, you know, he said, in the end, I don't care about that. I, you know, I'm the boss, you know, you, you know, it's my way or the highway. Yeah. He said that. I tell you, that's true. Yeah. he said those like, words. Yeah. So I said, to the road, okay, well, what would the highway look like? And he pulled a letter. Oh, his, really? <laughs> he said, look, you know, this is what the highway would look like. So I opened the letter and read it and was, I'm not very good at a poker face, but I was pretty good that day. I nearly choked on my cocktail because it was treble what I would have asked for. Wow. So I said, well, can I have a think about it? He said, tonight, can you decide? So I phoned him up and I said, I'll take the highway. 
Isn't it amazing? I know. Oh, I haven't been, I haven't been quite in that situation. I mean, I've been in a similar situation, not, not with those sums of money, but you just look at it and go, not only are they paying a vast amount, they're also letting go of someone that's delivered the results just because of ego. And well, yeah. the other thing is, the amazing thing is about, uh, and I, you know, I literally left straight away. Mm. I cleared my desk on the Monday. And um, about three weeks later, I get a call from him. He said, Rupert, um, can you, can, can, you, can you help me with something? I said, what? He said, well, the Opal client in Germany is refusing to talk to anybody other, other than, than you. you. Yeah, exactly. Could, 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 could you just try and, you know, pacify yeah. him? I said, John, you fired me. Yeah. He said, I, I know, I know, I know, but, but could you just do that? I said, I'll tell you what, I'll do it this once, but please don't ask again. Yeah. Anyway, so I did it. I phoned the Opal client. I said, honestly, the guys in the Frankfurt office are terrific. This is who you need to talk to. This is who you can trust. So I did that. And then um, ITV came out of the woodwork. And Michael Grade, who's my best mate in media and had been for donkey's years, so he's an old friend. And he said, look, I've just got to ITV. It's a fucking dog's dinner. You know, I need somebody who understands the media and advertising world to sort out the commercial side of it. Would you come and join me? And I said, well, no, I'm going to take the whole summer off. He said, well, would you come and join me in September? Because this was, I think this was, I can't remember when it was, May or something like that. And um, I said, yeah, well, I'll have a think about it kind of thing. And Michael's, Michael actually is probably as good a salesman as Tim Bell was. Uh, and so persuasive, yeah, he's brilliant, yeah. persuasive. And utterly brilliant. I love Michael. And um, he, uh, he persuaded me to go and join ITV. And that would never have happened if I hadn't sold True, yeah. So, so yeah. the way I look at it, and, you know, that was... That was a, it was a brilliant, eye-opening, but bruising experience. So I was on a main market PLC, FTSE 100 PLC board, a totally dysfunctional board, half of whom hated each other. I mean, really, it was a board split right down the middle, which, so one of the most obvious learnings from that was you, that just cannot happen. You cannot have it, unless you've got a united board. You can have dissent on issues but if you've got a board that where dissent is on personality you've got no chance the board was terrible but we did great things at itv and i met lots of famous people which was entertaining <laughs> and one or two, one or two have remained friends yeah. um but um most of them of course as soon as you leave would walk past you in the street um but one or two, actually quite a few are not like that to be fair um and but m i would say the majority are like that Literally people who were all over me like a rash, <laughs> you know, a month later, no, not a month later, six months later, I'd be in the Ivy Club and say hi, and they'd look at me like they didn't know who I was. And um, there are some others who are genuine and wonderful. Incidentally, the best of the lot is Anton Deck. The top I, hear that. I, still see I hear that so often. So I, many people say see, that. Um, yeah. I still see, we still see Deck and his wife, Ali, yeah. um, a, a bit. I see Ant less because after he split up with Lisa. Yeah. Uh, but Deck we still see. And we go to the theatre together when that was allowed and yeah. he's come to things of ours. And he's a lovely, lovely lad. Yeah. I took him to the my, – my end gig at ITV was uh, the Football World Cup in South Africa in 2010. So I had the boys down there with me for a week. We had a great time. Brilliant. Brilliant. And uh, so they're great. And Amanda Holden's great. I still see her occasionally because I was involved with her with Bassey, Dogs and Cats Home. 
uh, Phil Schofield only because his daughter's one of my daughter's best mates. Oh, so really? I really Phil. So yeah, I've been on the sidelines and all the fallout. Oh from yes, him, him coming out. Yeah, which there wasn't a single person in show business that didn't know he was gay. But anyway, uh, didn't matter. Uh, it still caused a ruckus and actually a lot of upset for his wife and kids. Mm. Not the fact, but how he did it. Mm. Um, uh, so that was fun. And then you know. I would never have done Reach because I met Simon Fox through ITV because we tried to hire him to run the PLC overall and he turned us down. But I stayed in touch with Simon, which I think is an example of how I... Yeah. But I only met Simon once because I was asked to interview him as part of the selection process. I thought he was fabulous, exactly what we wanted, what Michael Grade and I wanted to run the PLC. I was never going to run the PLC. I, run the, I ran the channels, and I, but I wasn't experience to run enough to run a FTSE 100 PLC and Simon had come from HMV that he'd rescued a couple of times really liked him nicest he's on he's the most has the most integrity of anybody I've ever worked with he's an incredible guy really liked him and you know after I left ITV I sort of messed around in all sorts of things and then he turned up at reach and um, one of the ideas I was looking at was to um, take over the intellectual property of the news of the world and create an online uh, version. So I still own URLs like World of the News and oh, do you? all that kind of thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. And um, I, I had, had a lot of uh, high-level support, uh, but in the end, it, the numbers just didn't work um, unless we did it with an existing title like The Sunday People that was owned by then Trinity Mirror that became Reach. So I rang up Simon. And I took him through the idea. He said, it's a great idea. We don't know what to do with the Sunday people. Let's talk about it. And again, we spent six months doing that. Could not make it work financially for both parties. And so we had a breakfast where we called it, you know, he's, he said, come on, let's have a breakfast just to put the seal on it that we're not going to do this and so on. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's very nice. And not thinking he might have an ulterior motive. And at the breakfast, he said, Honestly, I've been here six months at Reach. It's a total mess. Would you help me turn it around? Because you understand media and advertising. Mm. Almost the exact same conversation I'd had with Michael Grade, you know, um, five years earlier or four years earlier. And um, because I liked him. Yeah. And because I wasn't doing anything else particularly interesting. And because he said I didn't have to work full time, I could do four days a week. And then at my request, after a year, we went down to three days a week. And I could start taking on other outside chairmanships. I said yes, and the rest was history. We did a great turnaround. It was fascinating, and I learned how really how the tabloid media works, which um, is a whole nother topic. I was going to say there's an episode in that one, isn't there? <laughs> but all I would say is they're not bad people at all. Yeah. Uh, I in my entire time there, I didn't meet a single journalist who I would classify as an unpleasant or bad person. But the pressure they're under mm. nowadays, particularly to to break stories and to get eyeballs, is causing all sorts yeah. of damage yeah. to their profession, to their integrity, to them personally, and to their mm. victims or subjects, depending on how you want to call it. And um, I was quite pleased, actually, to retire when Simon got ousted and the new chief exec came in, it was a perfect time for me to say that's enough because I was starting to get uncomfortable with what the journalists were being asked to do for commercial reasons. Quite 
understandably, because they will not survive unless those commercial targets are, are met. But there's damage being caused by that. Mm. It's the, you're right, it's the machine, isn't it, is incentivized to work in that way. Well, if you put a story up online with a headline that says, reasonably good news, <laughs> yeah. um, reasonably good news, uh, no, very good news, AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca vaccine gives 90% immunity to this, that and the other, you'll get, you know, 500 clicks. If you put up shock horror, uh, 50-year-old woman dies of blood clot after vaccine. Yeah. You get yeah. 8 million. Uh, totally. And that is the be-all and end-all of the whole process, Yeah. which is there's been an inflation of shock tactics yeah. in the headline writing to grab the eyeballs because if you don't, somebody else will. And if you don't, as a journalist, you get fired. You've mm. got targets of the number of clicks you have to get. And they talk about clickbait. And unfortunately, clickbait is driven by shock and horror, massive exaggeration, celebrity, however vacuous, uh, nudity, sadly still, mm. but it's true, um, and violence. They're, they're what put it up. The only thing that gets you up a um, click list that doesn't fall into those categories is in football. So any story about Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea and Arsenal, they're the four, yeah. get much bigger clicks from around the world than any other story. So for example, if the story was Spurs by Lingard from Man United, that would get a thousand clicks. Man United sell Lingard to Spurs would get 10,000 clicks. Oh, really? Same story, yeah. different angle. Wow. So mm. think about that in mm. the context of any story you read. That's what's going on mm. in social media. That's, and that all starts with the online news sites. And um, so we, we, turned, we turned Reach, Trinity Mirror, from a bit of a basket case into a, into a viable machine. But I think the next thing, you know, the, the, the challenge is how do you, how do you police that? That's another whole episode, isn't it? Because, <laughs> you know, for the benefit of society, how do we wean ourselves off that drug? Well, there's been a book, there's a, there's a pamphlet book written by a Norwegian psychologist that my wife gave me for my birthday that's called Why You Should Give Up the News. And it's brilliantly argued that actually it's deeply damaging to your mm. mental health. And it, the, if I could summarise the book, which I won't do it justice, but if I could summarise it in one sort of idea, he said, basically, in the very beginnings of humankind, news, the news you got from, you know, whether it's from the beating drums or the smoke signals or whatever, word of mouth, was about topics that directly affect you personally. So the volcano is erupting, we should probably leave the cave, <laughs> is a personal, it's, it affects you directly. And what's happened with mass media news is that 99.9% .9 of our news is about stuff we can do nothing about. Mm. And therefore it makes us feel helpless. And helplessness is very damaging to mental health. So his solution is, do not read any newspapers and do not read any online news sites. Anything that's local to you, will you will get to hear about through neighbours and friends and so on. 
And anything that really matters, you won't be able to avoid, however hard you try, <laughs> through um, water cooler conversations or whatever. And if you really, really can't give it up 100%, give up everything except read the week once a week. That makes a lot of sense. Mm. And it's very well argued. And so what I, what, and I do you know what? Mm. It was affecting my mental health. And the number of people who said to me, I don't watch the news anymore. Mm. And I very, very rarely watch the news anymore. Mm. And I have deleted everything. I've deleted every news app apart from two. Mm. So I've kept the BBC, which even though you get a metropolitan elite left of centre view, is less exaggerated, biased and frantic than anyone else. Mm. And then to counterbalance it, I've kept the sun, mm. which I know it's a naughty thing to do when you've worked for the mirror. But the reason I've kept for sun is that the sun is actually slightly right of centre. It's not rabid right wing, actually. It really is. Yeah. I've, I've only really just started reading it online. Yeah. And I get, you get the slightly different point of view from the sun, but I'm about to delete that too, because it's starting to annoy me. Mm. It's exaggeration. And I think I'm happier for having, I'm genuinely happier for having deleted mail online, which I, I mean, I've talked to the guys at the mail. I, you know, I knew Paul Dake, Dacre well, and I knew the guys at Mail Online. Their their strategy was to irritate people. Yeah. It was to wind up Middle Britain. Yeah. I mean, that's the genius of the Daily Mail is they yeah. know how to wind. Paul Paul said to me once, he said, Rupert, if ever you see a front page story about the BBC or the EU, it's because I've got nothing else. <laughs> he said because I know that if I put an anti BBC or anti EU story on the front page of the Mail, it will sell and my readership will get appropriately wound up. I mean, it was totally open about it. Oh, you just think, have we really come, is this where we've really got to? I it's the danger of a free press. Um, and the critical thing is that you, that you allow a free press with different points of view. Mm. And that's why Andrew Neil's new thing is important, because on yeah. television, all the, all the news is left of centre. Yeah. Fraction, only slightly, but it is. And he's going to do something he's not doing Fox News. He'll do very slightly right. And he's just hired my old friend, Alistair Stewart. Alistair's a Labour voter all his life. So, you know, he's not just, he's hired Pierce, who's a Labour voter yeah. all his life. He's not going to, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, he's not going to hire fucking Katie Hopkins. No. So, um, but we need that because we there isn't balance. The alternative though, John, you have to think about the alternatives, you know, is do you want a, do you want a, poodle press like they've got in france or germany you know where then you know i mean french french and german governments they're just going at them now but they've they've literally got away with murder over this vaccination incompetence oh i can't believe I mean, that. people yeah. have died yeah people i mean thousands yeah. of people in france and germany have died yeah because of decisions taken by their politicians for yeah. political reasons, not hundred percent. I mean, can you yeah. imagine if yeah. Boris had done yeah. that here? Yeah, he he would have he would have been he would have been in court by now. Yeah, including by the Telegraph that's Tory supported. So the question becomes, which do you prefer? Mm. And that's what I learned at the at Reach, you know, because it had the Express and the Mirror and the Star. So, the, you know, the mirror always took the left of centre line, they expressed the right of centre line, the start took the piss. And that was kind <laughs> of how it worked. And then we had all the regional papers 
and titles like the Liverpool Echo Manchester News who had to remain centrist because mm. their business model couldn't allow them to be either left or right. They had to be in the middle and therefore, you know, more focused on and, and obviously more focused mm. on important local news. Local newspapers are really important things and they've gone, they're, they're in real danger. Mm. Uh, because they actually contain the news that does matter to you. Yes, they do. And I think you've you've touched on the, the most important thing, which is mental health, actually. And, and like you say, you're deleting apps and you, you you understand the industry. You know what's going on. You're still deleting the app. I've done the same. I think I only, I'm down to two now. And I've whittled my social media down to two as well because I just found myself, you know. Yeah. I mean, I don't use social media at all and that's because of what i learned about mm. it at itv so i had a twitter account a facebook account and an instagram account and i deleted all of them and i've done that partly for self-preservation because i would be arrested i'm sure <laughs> but because i'm because i'm an yeah. obsessive you know and i've said this to you before john and when we were talking about business is uh, emails my medium which you've seen i'm very quick on email i'm, I'm on it all the time emails my medium uh, so those things aren't my medium i'm not naturally at home on on that social media uh, whereas somebody of your age would be but i know that i would get into trouble particularly on things like twitter and facebook because i get so cross at the fucking morons and the moronic things they say you know i'm a, i'm of that generation that shouts at the telly yeah but the joy of shouting at the telly is nobody else can hear you. <laughs> yes. And the danger of shouting at the telly on Facebook is, is it's never, ever, ever deleted. It's, it's there forever. And I just, yeah. I remember saying to Lloyd Emley, the editor in chief of the of the Mirror of the Mirror Group, I said honestly, and he knew I was, you know, not Labour supporting. I said honestly, Lloyd, I'm going to get rid. He said I would root because you know hmm. he said it's fine you and I having banter, but you you know the banter. He said, I have with you, I would you never cannot, on Twitter or you Facebook. You cannot, no. And I say to my kids, my kids are off Facebook now, they don't, they're not interested in Facebook, is, uh, they, you know, Facebook's for kids, they think. Or, or old It is, it is, yeah, it has gone that way. There's all around TikTok and yeah. Instagram and all that. But they don't, they don't put anything up that is anything other than completely anodyne. Mm. And therefore, my argument is, well, what's the point? If mm. that's what you're going to do, just get rid of them. I know. I, I've had to do the same for my. Do you own. really want to see what your mates are having? For no, supper? I know. I don't. No. I don't give a fuck what you're <laughs> Well, well, I, I get to that point where I, I want to jump in and have a rant, and I think, no, 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 I've, I can't do it. See, but you just get that stress. It actually creates a bit of stress in you because you're feeling the anxiety of the issue or the point of view, and you, you've got to make a choice. Either you're in it or you're not. You know. Well, you know, my my version of that is whenever I got really angry, I'd write an email, but not send them. Mm. And every single one of those I've saved to draft in my history, well I've done. never sent them. <laughs> well done. <laughs> because basically you vent and then realise to send them is only going to be prolong yeah. the argument, yeah. no. upset somebody yeah. and get you nowhere. Yeah, that's good advice. Well, listen, I think it's been absolutely brilliant. I mean, I was going to ask a little bit about your non-execs and what you see, you know, are the big issues coming, coming up in the future? Well, I, you know, the, people will say, you know, they plan their non-executive life and so on but that's not how it happens it all happens i was going to say how do you get a non-exec role because i've been i've been approached for a couple through relationships and again this you know i'm an old white male okay i'm an old white male you will come become one of those at some point and the game has changed for us and most people would say well about time too mm. so i'm not complaining i've had a 
very privileged life and privileged i didn't have a wealthy upbringing but i ended up a privileged upbringing only because my dad was in the army and in those days they paid to send you to a school like wellington um which i would never have happened otherwise obviously because my my we had no money or anything um but uh i'm, I'm aware that as a as a well-educated white male i've had every advantage in life so i ain't complaining so very early on i've worked out that i wouldn't get any non-exec roles by talking to a headhunter or putting myself on a database or any of that because nobody nobody actively wants uh, a anonymous old white male mm. so that meant by definition it had to be either people i knew or people where i had very very specific skill sets and actually all of them all four have come from people i know mm. Makes so sense. my first one of, of my current lot and in fact every non-exec i've ever had has come from people i know well yeah so my first one which is roxy the music streaming business is um i was introduced to the chief exec by not a not a close friend of mine but a sort of acquaintance called michael mazinski has a really interesting ad agency called the london agency um and uh, Michael had approached me about becoming a London ambassador just because it's a hilarious title I <laughs> countenanced it and also a great friend of mine called Bruce Haynes is non-exec chairman of the agency so I went to meet Michael a few years back liked him a lot and sort of said well I'll help you if I can but I don't want to be paid I don't want a, any sort of title but you know you can give me commission if I help you get a new client something like that anyway and we sort of ended up chatting a lot and then suddenly he ran me one day and he said um, I'm great friends and a shareholder and great friends with the chief exec founder and shareholder in Roxy. I think you'd be perfect for them as a chairman and he's looking for a chairman. So I went to meet Rob Lewis, the chief exec, and we just, it was one of those things. We hit it off instantly. I'd won the pitch yeah. within 10 minutes and he won the pitch for me by showing me the product, which is spectacular. Yeah. Uh, I just fell in love with it completely and the rest is history. So that's how that happened. Then the next one, uh, well, system one happened because of Simon Bridges at Canaccord. So Simon, I met when uh, I was a non-executive chairman of an Israeli ad tech business called Matomi, uh, which was founded by my former McCann Israeli country manager, who was my favorite country manager, became a very good friend, Lan Shaloa, genius, absolute genius, top Israeli businessman, not just in advertising. And Ilan asked me to, he was IPOing it on the London market, asked me to join the board. I did. He then wanted, didn't want to be chairman, so I took over as chairman, and our brokers were Canaccord. Simon Bridges did a brilliant job, really liked him. We became good friends. We both like cricket, so we go to Lords together. And then he said to me about a year ago, um, I've got a little company that I like a lot who I think, you know, will be looking for a new chairman. Would you be interested? Because it's kind of in your in your sector so i said oh tell me about them i said oh yeah that looks interesting um i'd heard of it as brain juicer mm. and i didn't know john but i'd come across him and orlando so i said okay well you know they're interested sure and then again the rest is history then the my uh, medicinal cannabis business is a very old friend of mine the, the, the founder chief exec funny enough we just got the nine million euros this week is the um to to start to buy the site that we've got optioned and build the greenhouses. Excellent. So that's great. Wow. And uh, but the founder CEO Simon Crane is a 
very old friend of mine who I met when he was chief executive of QPR and WASPs. And um, he'd worked at the Coca-Cola company as head of strategy in, in Atlanta, and then came back to the UK, ran QPR and WASPs, and I met him then because I Chime had a sport marketing business and we became good mates. And he rang me up just out of the blue and said, I've got this company, I need a non-exec channel, would you like to do it? I said, yes. And then my final one was, um, which is Pinwheel, which is the sustainable living app. It was the guy, I was a consultant to a guy who founded Smart Energy GB. And when he was thinking about what he wanted to do next and started talking about this idea two years ago, he said, would you be my chairman? And I said, yeah, sure. So I've helped him build the whole thing. You know, one of the things I, my advice I gave the wonderful Zoe Harris, who's now Martin CMO of On The Beach, the travel company. Oh, yes, I've met her, yeah. I just, yeah. I discovered she, she's left, she was CMO of Confused.com, yes. but didn't like it. Yeah. And she's gone yeah. to On The Beach. Well, I trained her, trained her, I discovered her at Trinity Mirror. Yeah. As a sort of marketing manager there. Uh, Ex-planner from WCRS, she was the planner on Sky at White Collins, and then cross sides to become a she'd been on both sides of the agency client mm. equation and one of the few people who did it mm. comfortably uh, absolutely wonderful woman super smart great fun brilliant in every way and i uh, i sort of took her under my wing she was reporting to me to start with and she was one of those people who'd completely hidden her light under a bushel all her career so the thing i forced her to do was to start building a network so i got her i introduced her to wackle the women's advertising mm. club of london because my old friend sue far sort of is runs that so she's now a prominent wackle member i got i got her to join the marketing society she's now a prominent member there i got to do her, i said you just got to get out and meet people and start speaking at conferences and of course it turns out she's bloody good at it <laughs> everybody loves zoe when they meet her because she's a very colorful vibrant you know sort of slightly out there character as well as super bright she's she's more a planner by mentality mm. than, a, than, a, than than anything else and you know that led to her getting offers for confused.com and now on the beach and so on and her she will go right to the top of anything she does her the only thing she needed to do that she hadn't done and she credits me with all of this is learn how to network yeah and it, it's just you've got to do it you got to you've got to do it well, I think that's a very, very, very good point to end. Thank you, Rupert. That's been wonderful. Very happy. No, I enjoyed it. Well, it's been fun to chat. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Yeah, really good. Cool. All right, we'll see you soon. Take care, mate. Take care. Bye.